Deuteronomy chapter 16. I'll be reading verses 1 through 17. Kelvin, thank you for leading worship. It was a delight to, only for a moment, (laughs) a few minutes. I sit with my children. They are as excited about sitting with me as I am with them, and it's always a pleasure. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 16, we continue to look at the application of the fourth commandment about what it means to be Sabbatarian as a people devoted to the rest that God is bringing by His release and deliverance from sin and death. This week, we will be looking at the three feasts, Passover, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. Uh, Let me read, and I would invite you to follow along. Deuteronomy chapter 16, I'll begin reading verse 1 to verse 17. Observe the month of Abib and keep the Passover to the Lord your God. For in the month of Abib, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night, and you shall offer the Passover sacrifice to the Lord your God. From the flock or the herd, at the place that the Lord will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat no leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat it with unleavened bread, the bread of affliction. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste that all the days of your life you may remember the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. No leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory for seven days, nor shall any of the flesh that you sacrifice on the evening of the first day remain all night until morning. You may not offer the Passover sacrifice within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, but at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make His name dwell in it, there you shall offer the Passover sacrifice In the evening at sunset at the time you came out of Egypt, you shall cook it and eat it at the place that the Lord your God will choose. And in the morning you shall turn and go to your tents. For six days you shall eat unleavened bread. And on the seventh day there shall be a solemn assembly to the Lord your God. You shall do no work on it. You shall count seven weeks. Begin to count the seven weeks from the time the sickle is first put to the standing grain. Then you shall keep the feast of weeks to the Lord your God with the tribute of a freewill offering from your hand, which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite who is within your towns, the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow who are among you at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. You shall remember that you are a slave in Egypt, and you shall be careful to observe these statutes. You shall keep the Feast of Booths seven days when you have gathered in the produce from your threshing floor and your winepress. You shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns. For the seven days you shall keep the feast to the Lord your God. At the place that the Lord will choose, because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands, so that you will be altogether joyful. Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, at the feast of unleavened bread, at the feast of weeks, and at the feast of booths. They shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has given you. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of it. O Lord, you have made us a people whose holy obligation it is to have joy. And to have joy 
from the place from which it ought to erupt. You, O Lord, are to be the source of our delight. The knowledge and observance and remembrance of your deliverance of our souls from sin and death should make us a people with open hearts and open hands and a willingness to convey the glory of the gospel that sets men free to a watching and listening world. O Lord, help us then to be the leaven that will bring blessing to this world. We ask all of this in your holy and precious name. Amen. Woven into the very fabric of God's work among his people is the joy of release and deliverance. And there is a theme within every worship service, though we are not those who believe that only those songs that are happy songs are to be sung in worship. Sometimes we sing somber songs. Sometimes we come to worship and we're sad. What if you bury a relative on Saturday and you show up in church on Sunday morning? It's the best place to be. You don't want to sing only those things that are uh, a betrayal, even of the sorrow in your own heart, missing those, even those who've died in Christ. No, the Psalms are a, a songbook for every human emotion. God understands our emotions, and yet He calls us to joy. He calls us to joy as a duty of those who have been delivered from sin and death, as a pervasive uh, emotion that obliterates over time our anxiety and fear and doubt. And within all of the, um, the feasts and the celebrations of Israel is this call to possess joy as a means to promote uh, love for the world and a, a desire to see the world blessed by those things signed and sealed even in the Old Testament ceremonies that, of course, have been fulfilled by Christ Jesus. These are an extension of the Sabbath release, the concept of God's Sabbatarian release of Israel or the church from the land of sin and death, the land of Egypt. That we are to be a people whose entire religion is grounded upon this principle, if you have been set free, you are free indeed. Never go back to Egypt, but to live as free men as free women, with open hearts and open hands, devoted to love and good deeds. These feasts, then, are to shape the principles found within even our lives today. Two points that I want to make tonight uh, concerning that very idea. The first, a body devoted to feasting, a body, I'm talking about the body, the church, a body devoted to feasting, and then secondly, feasting in the Old and New Covenants. And here I really want to talk about how Christ fulfills these old ceremonial uh, celebratory occasions, how they are to be observed today, and the principles that we find even in the New Covenant Church. A body devoted to feasting first, and then second, feasting in the Old and New Covenants. Let's look at the first point, a body devoted to feasting. Now there is something inherently memorializing about the act of eating and ingesting food. You will remember a dish that someone brought to the fellowship meal in ways that are more lasting than points that I make in a sermon. And that is something particularly unique and natural to men. I remember some of the great meals that I've had. 
I could walk you through them point by point. Uh, The second date I ever went on with my wife, a restaurant called Ratcliffe on the Green, it's no longer there. And I can remember every moment of it. And part of it was not just the good company, it was the good food. And those things build, they, they inform and enhance and make all of it beautiful. That's why when you go to a very nice restaurant, they don't just slop food down in front of you. What is also part of the meal is the presentation of it. And all of that, God making our our bodies and our souls, know how we engage with Him and with one another. And so when He establishes ceremonies and celebrations, it always revolves around roasted meats, (laughs) fine breads, And good oils, rich, delicious food, and well-aged wine, of course. We are a body, the church, in the Old and the New Covenant, that gets something from the smell and the touch and the taste of food. This is why the Lord's Supper is so meaningful and ought to be in our hearts. Because it's not just something that is declared to our ears. It is manifested to every sense that we possess as human beings. And so as God is calling Israel to feast and delight in Him, He wants them to literally internalize the covenant. To make it their own. To ingest the principles of grace. And that is what Passover was and continues to be through the Lord's Supper. Now, the Passover was instituted at the first act of God's epic deliverance when he commanded Israel, get ready to leave, put your sandals on, stand up. This is a meal you eat while standing. Make unleavened bread, eat roasted goat or lamb, eat it in front of me in my presence beneath the bloodstained lentil. Now, this was, I can remember back, I remember when Ellie was baptized, it was the day of her baptism, Sunday morning, and I preached from the book of Exodus. That's how long ago I was in the book of Exodus. And I was preaching on the Passover. And it was a perfect sermon, which I wasn't an out-of-sequence sermon. It was a sermon in sequence, preached the book of Exodus, and there Ellie was being baptized. And we study what it means to be covered by the blood of the Lamb. Baptism is a sign and seal of that same concept, to be washed to be covered by the blood of Christ, now washed through the water of the Holy Spirit. Israel was on the move, out the door, while Egypt was being judged. Passover was the yearly feast in the month of Abib, where Israel would memorialize that great act of deliverance. It was the highest and holiest of all the feasts of Israel. It was a week-long feast, in essence, There was a week of celebration, a week of memorializing. A sacrifice was to be made in verses 2 and 5 only in the city of Jerusalem, the city of God, that place where God dwells. Or it would be once Israel got to Jerusalem. You were to eat only unleavened bread for seven days, referred to as the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which coincided with the Passover. It indicates the haste of Exodus, the remembrance of deliverance, and the lack of leaven, which was associated with wickedness and unrighteousness. God was calling Israel to be the unleavened bread among the nations. 
God was calling them to be distinct. The leaven of wickedness and sin, you are not a leavened people. You are an unleavened people devoted to righteousness. Now, there were other times when Israel would eat leavened bread, but during the Passover, this principle was injected into this feast, and that is, keep sin out. You have been delivered. Do not go back to that place of wickedness and rebellion. For it is there that Christ, as Jude says, Jesus, who was the one who delivered Israel out of Exodus, brought the great plagues against Egypt. And we often talk about the plagues because they're fun and they're violent and they're crazy. But the plagues come against Egypt, not Israel. While Christ is judging Egypt, he is blessing Israel. When the sun was darkened over those places where the Egyptians lived, guess where the sun was shining? The Hebrew camp. Christ wasn't just saying, I punish sin. But these are my chosen people, my beloved people. And this is the benefit that comes by being my covenant people. And you know what happened? Many Egyptians repented and went with Israel out of Egypt. And not only did they leave with Israel, but Israel also took the spoils of Egypt, gold and silver and livestock and great wealth. In fact, the central theme of the cross, where through the saving work of God, we see this. Some are brought to life and some are judged. It is there upon the cross that we read of mercy and wrath kissing one another. The cross of Jesus Christ is that place where God's perfect wrath and perfect mercy are displayed in the Passover lamb. That's the feast of Passover. Also, there is the feast of weeks or Pentecost. In verses 9 through 12, we read of it there. And we read, you shall count seven weeks from the time of the beginning of harvest. Pentecost, meaning 50 days, 49 here, seven weeks, depending on which day you begin to count from. 50 days after the resurrection of Christ Jesus, we see the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Now, in the Old Testament, the Feast of Weeks was seven weeks from the beginning of the harvest. Look at verse 9. From the moment that the sickle is first put to the grain, you count seven weeks... And then you have a feast. Where did that feast come from? From all that was harvested. Where does that harvest come from? From the pagan gods whom you pray to and sacrifice your children to, praying for rain? No. Whom? The one who also delivered Israel from Egypt. Each of these feasts reminds Israel that they are dependent upon God for everything. From the deliverance they received from Egypt, the land of sin and death and bondage, no longer enslaved, to the yearly bringing in of the harvest, which is attached to the Noahic covenant, right? Every year there will be springtime and harvest. Now, sometimes God in his providence frustrates those harvests and he causes drought. In the Old Testament, we see why he did that. It was to bring Israel to Egypt in the first place and to magnify himself through the provision of Joseph. Here, God delivers Israel again. And every time Israel brought in the harvest, they were to think God, Yahweh, Christ, of whom we read in the New Testament, is providing for us all that we need. Not only for the freedom to worship as he has called us to worship, but to fill our bellies and to eat 
And so included within this festival was the remembrance that Israel was once slaves in Egypt. Look at verse 12. You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and you shall be careful to observe these statutes. Now, each of these feasts have within them an element of feasting and celebration before the Lord and an element of forcing Israel to remember, to remember, to remember. One of the things that Martin Luther, the great reformer, said to one of his sons was, you must every day preach the gospel to yourself. Now, Martin Luther's sentiment is the same that we find here in verse 12 of chapter 16. You shall remember that you are a slave in Egypt. What does the gospel communicate about the state of your soul prior to God's deliverance? You were unworthy. You were lost in your trespasses and sins. You were a slave in Egypt. In fact, this has very practical application for us even now. Do you do such a thing? When you gather for worship every week, do you intentionally think, praise God, that he has sent his son into the world and into my heart to forgive me for the sins that I have so willfully and rebelliously committed? As one elder said to me, if not for the grace of God, there go I. Every time you see someone and say, thank God I'm not like him, instead say, if it were not for the grace of God, there go I. It is a pride destroyer. It is a joy joy encourager. If you are constantly aware of the beauty and the power and the glory of God's grace, you will sin less and you will worship more freely and you will love others more willingly. This is the great feast of Pentecost, the feast of weeks, the bringing in of harvest. And then there's the Feast of Booths, often also associated with harvest. You shall keep the Feast of Booths, verse 13, seven days when you have gathered in the produce from your threshing floor and your wine press. This would be sometimes in what the months we would call September or October. And look at verse 14. You shall rejoice. God is saying you shall have joy. Now, if you do not have joy in the Christian life... God has a cure for you. Remember. Remember. Children, I I imagine it's easy for you to often complain of the things you do not have. Perhaps you've gotten a birthday gift, or maybe um, adults, you've purchased the latest gadget or something, and every year, this company comes out with something faster, bigger, in a new colorway, and you think, I want that one. Yes, that's the point. That's what they're trying to get you to do. Not to reflect upon the things and the good things that you do have, but to constantly want something faster and bigger and better that brings you greater pleasure and joy. It is a never-ending, I guess, carousel of greed and desire and covetousness. But a heart that is looking back at the great gift they've already been given and there's nothing greater than that, will be a heart that is not so insanely focused, so rabid and consumed with the things of this world. The Feast of Booths and Tabernacles 
celebrated the ingathering of the harvest. And again, again, it was indicative and it was meant to lead Israel into a reflection upon where all that they have comes from. What they're learning is how to be people of open hearts and open hands. And I know that sounds kind of cliche. But the example they have in Christ, in Yahweh, is a God with an open heart and an open hand. Time and time again, God forgives Israel, he punishes them, but then he restores them back to proper standing. When Israel was languishing in slavery in Egypt, what did he do? He poured out his heart. He revealed to them his gracious deliverance. At the Red Sea, he shows them again. And then when the bitter waters were made clean and sweet, when they were hungry, he opened his hands and gave them manna and gave them quail. He gave them water from the rock. Even when they rebelled at the land, the border of the promised land, and they refused to go in, even though he cursed one generation, he brought the other generation back and led them into the land of promise. And there he parted the waters of the Jordan. These feasts teach us that our God is not stingy. They teach us the abundance of God's grace through the abundance of God's provision from the land. God's incredible provision as part of his blessing of the covenant was anticipated in the celebration of the feasts before and during Israel's occupation. And not only was it anticipated, but it was recognized. That is, as they look back, these feasts proclaimed what God has provided, how God is providing, and that God would provide. And so the covenant... And the benefit of covenant renewal ceremony is that we look back. This is what the Lord's table does. We look back at Christ's provision in his death. It calls us to a present piety and devotion to him, even as we look forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We are stuck right in the middle of a historical, glorious faith built upon the manifestation of God's saving grace, looking forward to the future with this security that we will arrive even as God has provided, he will provide. We have hope. And so, as we worship a God who is not empty-handed, how are we to come into his presence? With full hearts and full hands. One of the things we do, even in worship, is we give. We give of our hearts to him. We sing. And there's no better way to give your heart to someone than to sing them a song, right? Even if you can't sing. If anything, Top Gun has taught us that, right? You've lost that love. You know, everybody knows that sing. That scene, it's, it's, it's fantastic. It's a man declaring his love for a woman. And it works. Why does it work? Why does it work? Why do all the girls swoon at the love songs? Because it goes deeper than, I love you. But what if someone sings it or puts it into poetry? Because art and beauty have impact. 
And what we do, and we offer to the Lord songs that He's given us to sing to Him, truth, our hearts are moved and they are filled with love and joy for Him. We give to Him our prayers, our trust, our dependence. He feeds us from His Word. It is an exchange of full hearts. Zephaniah chapter 3. The Lord rejoices over us. The Lord delights in us. He delights in you. That is something that people need to hear now more than ever. In a world where people are more and more alienated, they need to hear that God delights in sinners through the Son, through redemption. And as we come to this God who gives lavishly, we become what we behold. If you are uncharitable with others, it is because you do not understand God's love and charity to you. That's the sum and substance of it. A stingy heart is a heart that has not been touched by grace. And so God's grace becomes our grace. His gift that emanates in our gratitude becomes our willingness to give to others. You will find no more charitable people than people who are controlled and transformed by grace. This is what happens in the book of Acts, doesn't it? And this will sort of segue into the next point. When the Holy Spirit is poured out on Pentecost, we read two things happen. They break bread together. And then they give to the apostles out of the overflow of their hearts. The Spirit moved in them to give the resources they possessed for the building and establishing of that very young New Covenant church. Why did they give? Because the Spirit compelled them to do so. Because that is what Christians do. We give out of the overflow of transformed hearts. And so, secondly... Feasting in the Old and New Covenants. Now the fulfillment of these feasts are all fulfilled in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Lord's Day, Resurrection Day, is all of the feasts of the Old Testament pushed into one. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, His death, burial, and resurrection fulfills all of what is signed and sealed and prefigured in the feasts of the Old Testament. Passover is easy. He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He is a Lamb standing in Revelation, though slain. But He's not some sort of tender-looking, limp creature. He is a mighty, strong Lamb. John chapter 19, Ezekiel chapter 12, we read these precise requirements. Christ fulfilled those things to be the Passover Lamb. And we... Those who are members of the uh, true Israel, founded upon Christ Jesus, keep the feast by eliminating the leaven of wickedness that Egypt represented. We reject the leaven of unrighteousness and we embrace the leaven of the new covenant. In fact, go to Matthew chapter 13 and we'll see not only how Christ manifests this, but how we are to think of the feasts And Christ's fulfillment of them in our lives today. Matthew chapter 13. And I'll also go to Luke chapter 13. Or at least I'll say they're the exact same. Matthew chapter 13 beginning in verse 31. 
He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all the seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Christ is talking about the church. He's talking about how the church will one day be greater than any power on earth. And then he tells another parable related to the first. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Christ's fulfillment of the Passover, now called the Lord's Supper, because it is a ceremony that acknowledges that Christ has taken away the leaven of sin, now calls us to be the leaven of the world. He has changed something intrinsically about the way that the covenant is administered and the world is transformed rather than withdrawing from the leaven of the world do not intermarry which we are also called not to do don't marry or be unequally yoked together with an unbeliever but to avoid contact in essence with the unrighteous now we are called to do what not avoid the leaven of wickedness but to take the leaven of righteousness manifested by the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart and go and change the world. And then is therefore connected to Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks. Now in John chapter 4, when the Christ talks to the woman in the well and she is sent on her way and she goes to Samaria and she's talking with her friends, Jesus begins to talk to the disciples. And he talks about the coming of the Holy Spirit And he says, even as the group of Samaritans are coming to them, look, I say to you, the fields are white unto harvest. Now, Jesus is not just talking about that moment in which the disciples are to evangelize those Samaritans, which breaks down the dividing wall between the Jews and the Gentiles, or the half-Jews. But he is also speaking of what would come 50 days later, from the first harvest, or that day of first harvest, his resurrection. When the Holy Spirit is poured out and 3,000 people are brought into the kingdom, it is a memorialization of Christ's firstborn power raised from the dead, and from that firstborn power, the nations will begin to come in. And that is through the Holy Spirit This is the leaven of the Holy Spirit. His people will transform. And so, the unleavened exercise of Old Testament Passover becomes the leavened observation of the Lord's Supper. This is the biblical principal reason why you find leaven in the Lord's Supper at this church. Because it symbolizes Christ giving His Holy Spirit and manifesting his ever-growing presence in the church. You are the leaven. So this is what you do. You go out into the world, and God uses you to grow the church. Because Christ has fulfilled the Passover requirement and has defeated death and hell, he sends forth his church, and by the power of his Holy Spirit... The Feast of Weeks is kept. And not only that, but that of booths and tabernacles, where the nation of Israel is at the end of harvest called to celebrate it. 
He's done it again. I've never been happier in my life on a regular basis than when I sit down and my wife has prepared an excellent meal. I mean, it's just joy all the way to my toes. Why? Well, I love food. You know, some people eat to live. Some people live to eat. Christ wants us in terms of piety and devotion to be those who live to eat. He wants us to love, to delight and be nourished upon those spiritual gifts that he has given to us. And not only spiritual gifts, but physical gifts. Israel was singing and celebrating, and especially in an age without refrigeration. The harvest was important. It meant we can live several more weeks. God has provided And they were dependent upon those things. And not only that, but even as they were called to rejoice together, those with no inheritance in the land, the priests and the widows and the the foreigners, Israel was to say, here, take the bounty of the land. Those of you who have no inheritance, here is your inheritance. It is the exercise of Christian mission. We take the gospel that proclaims Christ's provision and we receive full hearts and acknowledgement of it. And then we say to those who have no inheritance, here is your inheritance. And then what happens? They become part of the family of God. We come with an overwhelming sense of generosity to the work of God's kingdom because we understand the generosity of God. This is the fullness that is the driving force behind bringing in the nations. You will never evangelize unless you are super excited about what God has done for you. Super excited is a theological term. Pumped. Jazzed up. When you love something, what do you do? You cherish it and you tell other people about it. A band, a restaurant, a movie... We are worshipers by nature. And part of worship is not just coming to the object of worship and delighting in it, but it is also saying, come and meet the one who has given me everything. And so Christ, being the author and perfecter of our faith, calls us to emulate him. And because God is our deliverer, and we have seen his powerful deliverance, and we sing of it, we remember it, we testify to it joyfully, willingly, he is actually causing us to ingest and internalize in our own hearts his own character. And so as we worship a God who is overflowing in his love and compassion, it will, through our real observation of it, what I'm saying is when you come to church... Don't go through the motions. Mothers, have you ever prepared a meal for your children and you serve them first and by the time they sit down, they're done? And it's like, did it touch your tongue? I remember as a freshman in college, as a celebration of a relatively successful first semester, one of my uncles took me to eat at this very fine French restaurant in Atlanta. Um, very fine is code for 
way outside my price range. And we sat down, and it was wine with every course. And it wasn't just wine, it was food. And the food was prepared in such a way and presented not just by the kitchen staff, but the waiter. It was an event. I will never forget that moment. And the one thing my uncle said to me is this. First of all, you shouldn't be drinking wine. (laughs) But slow down. And so he taught me how to imbibe a sip of wine. So this is what I want you to do. He said, I want you to take it into your mouth. And as it touches the certain parts of your tongue, I want you to describe what you taste. And I'm like, what? I mean, I'm a Philistine, right? (laughs) As it comes to eating and drinking. I like burgers and french fries. I want you to tell me what every part of your tongue experiences as the wine goes over. And then when you take a bite of this particular thing, I want you to see if you can pull out some of the spices that were used in the sauce. When we come to worship, we need to come with our senses engaged so that we, when we're worshiping, and this can be hard when we're distracted, especially by children, we need to focus upon the beauty of each element and what it does in communicating the richness of the majesty of God. That is how we ought to come to worship. Hungry. Satisfied only by God. And then as those who've been satisfied and are full, we go out and say, I know where the best cooking in all of Gastonia is. It is in the house of God. I'm not saying, I'm not talking about the preaching, it's the best, I'm saying the worship of the saints and each of those elements, it pulls out a different flavor, a different characteristic of the beauty and glory of God. And when we become a people who learn to slow down and enjoy and observe and memorialize and ingest and internalize the glory of God's covenant, we will be transformed. Let's pray. Oh Lord our God, we do ask this night,